All right, good morning. Everybody feeling good this morning? Beautiful weather this week and last week coming up. That should make you feel better. And uh, you're in the house of the Lord today. Amen? That's a good place to be. So thanks for being here. If you are a guest, thank you so much for finding us, for spending some time with us. Make sure you go to the Welcome Center after the service and get a gift from us for you. And uh, last week we started a new series. We started a series, and uh, contrary to what Steve said, this complements foundations. Steve, where are you? This uh, This is very complimentary to the foundations theme that we're covering all year. The book of James is all about uh, building that foundation and growing on it, right? So James is um, the earliest book, most people believe, most scholars believe it's the earliest book that was written in the New Testament. This is important because its, its content is a little bit different. That's why some people like Martin Luther of the Reformation and those who were living in the, in the, uh, under the uh, heavy shadow of the Roman Catholic Church and their emphasis on a works-based theology is that, you know, hopefully when you die you have more good things and you have bad things against you, then maybe you'll go to heaven. And if, if you don't, somebody might be able to buy you out of there. You know, this place that they call purgatory, which is not in the Bible. So uh, Martin Luther was reacting against that because uh, James mentions what? Faith and what? Works. It's a faith that works. And so there's been some reaction against it, but we know that, uh, you know, because James wrote early, he hadn't read Paul yet. He, he hadn't read the Apostle Paul. Matter of fact, he was part of the confirmation of the Apostle Paul's ministry, and the Apostle Paul is the one who really expounded this idea and kind of formalized this idea of how faith and works go together. And so we know we're not saved by works. We're saved for works, right? Uh, and so... The book of James is all about a changed life, a changed life. Now, last week, we spent most of our time talking about the writer of this book. And uh, we, we said that this James, although there were several, is the half-brother of Jesus. Anybody have any half-brothers or sisters? I do. I have two half-sisters and a half-brother uh, who live in Parkersburg. My dad was married uh, before he married my mom. And so a half-brother means, uh, you know, we have the same, one parent the same and the other parent not the same. And so uh, Jesus had a parent that was common to James, that was Mary, but the father was different, right? We understand theology, God was the father of Jesus. And so this James became, uh, he went from being a skeptical brother John 7, 5 says his brothers didn't even believe in him. They were kind of skeptical to a, uh, a fully devoted follower. And we know this because in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Jesus appeared, the resurrected Jesus appeared to James. So, and he became, uh, James did, highly respected among the apostles and a key leader in the Jerusalem church. You can look at Acts chapter 15 and see how uh, when everybody had had their say, James spoke up. You know, it's kind of like when you're at the dinner table, maybe you're at some big family gathering and everybody's arguing, and then finally when, uh, the, uh, you know, father, or uh, maybe in your case it's your mother, when she speaks up, it's the last word, right? Anybody have a mom or a dad who got the last word? 
Yeah, and if you were a kid growing up with that, the last word meant a swat across the, uh, you know, the backside, and that was the last word, right? And if there was a word after that last word, there was another last word, right? So James was that guy. He was that church leader. They had all said their piece, and then he had the last word. He was, by some estimation, the primary influencer in the early church that that allowed a mostly Jewish church, because that's where the earliest converts came from, Judaism, the day of Pentecost, it was full of Jewish people. Thousands of people came to Christ, were baptized that day. And, and, and when the apostle Paul went out in Acts, you know, after Acts chapter 10, he was converting Gentile people. And these, there was a big collision there in Acts chapter 15, and James was the one who kind of allowed this coexistence of a Jewish background and a Gentile background. He was kind of a peacemaker. He was a way forward. He, could, he was kind of prophetic in his view. So in short, this James was a big deal. But when he introduces himself in his letter, how does he introduce himself? He doesn't rest on his laurels. He doesn't say, look at who I am, look at what I've done, look at my position. No, he said, I am a what? You remember? I'm a servant. And that word servant is the Greek word doulos, and it means what? Anybody know? It means slave. I'm a slave of God and of my brother. He didn't say that, but he said of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we said that this is the starting point. If you want a faith that works, if you want to be solid out there in the world and out there in the, you know, the marketplace of ideas where you're being attacked for your faith and you're belief in God and your stand on the Bible and biblical truth, if you want a faith that works for you and in you during that time, this is the starting point. Understand who you are in Christ. Understand that he calls the shots. Amen? He calls the shots. I, I follow his lead. I do what he says. So James wrote this book to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. These 12 tribes are not the 12 tribes of Israel that were scattered under the heavy hand of Assyria and Babylon. No, these are, the, these are the Jewish Christians, the ones I just talked about, who came to Christ early. And then by the eighth chapter of Acts, the Bible says they were being heavily persecuted by Jewish people. And the Bible says in Acts 8, 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all, what's that next word? Scattered. They were all scattered. What's that mean? It means they all spread out throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. So in short, these Christians, Jewish Christians, were being persecuted, and they began to run for their life. They were, they were being hunted down and chased down, <clears throat> taken to prison, some of them killed, and this was by the Jewish people. And if you remember, and I don't really, I'm not going to spend any time on this, but who was kind of leading the charge? Do you remember who was leading the charge for the Jewish people against the Christians? It's right there in that passage. What was his name? Saul. Saul was the one, and Saul, he was, so, he was such an effective persecutor of, of men and women who followed Christ that Jesus said, we're going to have to do something about him, and so I tell you what we'll do, we'll convert him. 
we'll turn him into a Christian. And sometimes that, those are the best uh, evangelists and the best people for Christ, those who, who come to God with a, with a testimony, you know, a testimony of rebellion, a testimony of animosity and apathy and hatred toward uh, God in all things uh, Jesus. So I say that to say this, don't give up on your atheist friends. Don't give up on your hostile skeptical friends even if you're married to one of them even if you live with some of them because god may yet have a plan for their life in fact i would submit to you he does have a plan for their life he, he wants to see something out of them so when these people ran what did they do did they run and run in fear no the bible says those who were scattered went about what preaching the word preaching the word and so the church grew. While they were running, they were sharing the gospel, and the church grew. It really, this, this really has something to say to us who are being marginalized in our culture, and we're being told to shut up, to keep that to ourselves, not to really talk about Jesus. You can talk about God if you want to in broad, generic terms. You, you can talk about god in any way you want to but when you talk about jesus you need to you need to be over here and be quiet have you found that to be true that it's jesus who offends it's the gospel of jesus who offends and that's a time for us to say no not going to shut up about jesus not going to shut up and going to keep saying it because that's what's bringing life to people so the reason they were able to do that is because they had a faith that worked. So James says, hello, greetings. And then he says this, when we get into really what I want to talk about today, verses 2 through 4, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now, I don't know how many of you saw the He Gets Us commercials. <clears throat> Anybody see them? You watched the, the game last week? or maybe you've seen them on TV, the He Gets Us commercials. I mention those because I want us to be spiritually sensitive to what's going on in our culture. There are some things working for us and some things working against us, and you and I sometimes have trouble discerning, is this for us or is this against us? And so we have to, do, we have to make a determination, where are we going to stand on this issue? Do we support this or do we uh, stand against this? <clears throat> it might look like a good thing, but it's not a good thing. Now, for me, the verdict is still out on the He Gets Us commercials. I love the Chosen series. Joel mentioned here up there in the beginning, but the Chosen and he, the He Gets Us commercials are getting criticized by the same kind of people who are saying, and they're Christian people, many of them. They're saying that we're, we're, we're allowing a, a embellishment of Jesus, a picture of Jesus that the, that the gospel record is not sufficient for and so there's criticism like if it, if the gospel is sufficient don't add to it just let it speak for itself and that's a legitimate argument but let's be honest every time a preacher stands up to preach he's he's i'm not going to use the word embellishing but he is you know he's discussing what he knows and what he studied by other men and women who have written about this topic so unless we're uh you know just going to stand up and read the bible and let it go at that not comment on it it's it's all kind of the same 
And, you know, we, sometimes we could just do that, just read the Bible and let it go. We won't say a word about it. We won't, we won't comment on it. We won't encourage you with it. We'll just read it, and then we'll go home. And so that's one way, you know, that if, if you carry their argument to the extreme, that's where you have to go with it. But all those people who are criticizing he, the He Gets Us commercials and the Chosen, they're preaching in their, in their pulpits. So they are, they're also doing in some way the same thing that the others are doing. So I'm still out about that. Uh, I just remember what, what uh, Jesus said to John in Luke 9 when John came to him and said, Lord, there's some guys over there who are casting out demons in your name. You want us to shut them down. We know he's not one of us. He's not following us. He's not coming with you. You think Jesus said, yeah, go shut that guy down. He's, I don't give him the authority to do that. I'm not endorsing his message. Jesus didn't say that, did he? In Luke 9, 50, Jesus said, don't stop him. For the one who is not against you is for you. So as discerning Christians, we need to be able to look at our culture and see what's going on, whether good or bad, and discern <coughs> where we might want to stand on the issue. I think that he gets us commercials and the chosen series are in this Luke chapter 9 arena. But here's what I know, and here's why I bring that up. We know that he gets us. God understands us. Jesus, the Bible says, was here. We don't have a high priest who was unable to, not, who was unable to sympathize with us. He was in every respect tempted as we are without sin. So, yeah, he gets us, but the question for us, if you remember from last week, is what? Do we get him? And if we do get him, guess what? Your life will look different than the world. And in this area of trials, in this area of trials, your life's going to look a whole lot different. When bad things happen to you, it's going to look different than when bad things happen to your unbelieving neighbor. You with me? When, when trials come, and I'm talking about the worst kind of trials, or the, the, the easy, everyday, flat tire trials, when those things happen to you, it's going to look different than it does to those who don't know Jesus. Right? You get me? You get me? I hope so. And trials are no surprise. And see, that's what James is about. James is a book not a theology book. It's a book of practical living. Paul writes the theology books. James writes, here's all I know, James says. I was a skeptic. I, I met my brother again as the resurrected Lord, and now I'm a believer. And it changed my mind, and it changed my heart, and it changed my life. And because of that, my life looks different. I don't do or say or think or listen to the things that I used to. And, uh, and so, because we live in this world and we're living counterculturally, we have trials. Jesus warned us in John 16, 33. He said, don't, uh, uh, he said you're going to have trouble. <clears throat> James says, don't be surprised. I'm sorry, Peter, in his book, said, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you as something strange were happening. <clears throat> don't run up to the preacher, oh, I got trouble. Yeah? What's new? And maybe it's because you're living like you ought to be living. One preacher said that our lives are kind of like pushing a wheelbarrow. 
Anybody ever pushed a wheelbarrow? If you've never pushed a wheelbarrow, find one and spend an hour pushing it around. It's, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's what every uh, person ought to do. And sometimes our lives are like pushing that wheelbarrow. Now, if that wheelbarrow's empty, I mean, it's just like, you know, maybe the front tire's bouncing around, and it's really pretty easy. It's pretty easy. And uh, I, I, would, I would tell you, parents, let your kids push a little wheelbarrow. Get them used to steering something. Because the point is, we're all carrying some kind of baggage. And this preacher said, <clears throat> you know, it's not too bad when you're just pushing the wheelbarrow around, but... At times, the wheelbarrow gets full of bricks, and maybe a lot of bricks. And then you're, you know, you're just kind of pushing it around, and life's getting kind of hard. It's getting kind of hard because you've got this baggage, and you're pushing it around. And then he said, <clears throat> it's like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks uphill. Have you ever tried to push something heavy uphill? Wow, and the ground's slippery, and you're, you're slipping, and maybe you lose the load. Anybody ever had that happen to them? A lot of you guys have that have worked in that stuff. But get this, he said, sometimes life is like pushing a wheelbarrow full of bricks uphill in sand, in sand. Now how hard is it? It's impossible, isn't it? And sometimes your life gets that way. The question is, what are you going to do when that happens? And there may be some of you right now pushing a wheelbarrow load of bricks uphill in sand. And you're like, I just can't do it anymore. There might be people you know that that's, their, that's the analogy of their life. And they just can't do it anymore. What are they going to do? And so trials can be overwhelming. <clears throat> and um, I want to tell you something. I have never had a trial that made an appointment I've never had a trial that sent me a save the date card. Have you? I've never had a trial say, hey, block out four to six on a Friday evening because I'm going to visit you on that day. You, you with me? You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> no, when trials come, they usually come up from the back and hit us on the head. They sneak up on us. <clears throat> so what do you do when a trial comes your way? James says, be joyful. What? Is this guy crazy or what? What do you mean be joyful? And I want you to know that this is not, this joy he's talking about here, I'm, it's like the fruit of the spirit joy. It's deep down satisfaction. It's not Pollyanna happiness. Y'all know Pollyanna, don't you? You know, every year that passes, I'm afraid that my old illustrations or analogies are, don't work because kids don't learn in school what they used to and they don't read what they used to. They don't read. And, uh, and so we have to be careful. So y'all know who Pollyanna was? Pollyanna was always what? Always smiling, always optimistic. Little Pollyanna, anything could happen and she was still happy about it. That's a happiness and maybe she had joy, and that was what caused her to do that. Sometimes a Pollyanna attitude can be oblivious to what's really going on, and they just like, uh, do you know your house is burning down? Yeah, I know. Isn't that cool? That's, not, that's the Pollyanna attitude I'm talking about. 
No, I'm talking about joy, a joy deep down that says, I know my house just burnt down. I just lost everything. I just lost those things that meant so much to me, but I'm still alive. I'm still alive, and God loves me. And that, that's the kind of joy James says to have. Now, how can we have this? First, I can have this kind of joy because I know that God is in control. God is in control. Amen? God is always in control. He's sovereign. <clears throat> no matter what happens to me, no matter what he allows to happen to me, nothing happens to me without his say-so. <clears throat> No matter what happens to me, good or bad, God is on his throne, Psalm 47, 8. God is faithful and can always be trusted, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. God is good and will always do the right thing, Psalm 107, 1. God is able to make all grace abound to me in every situation, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. God works all things together, we read that this morning, uh, and, and for his good in my life, Romans 8. 28. So I, I know that I can have joy because I know God's in control. And secondly, because I am his servant. I am his servant. God loves me so much he sent his son to die for me on a cross at Calvary, Romans 5, 8. God is merciful and gracious to me, Psalm 107, 7. God cares for me so much that I can cast all my anxiety on him, 1 Peter 5, 7. God promises to never leave me or forsake me, Hebrews 13, 5. God has given me the Holy Spirit to live in me and walk alongside me, Acts 2, 38. And you see, so I can have troubles and trials in my life, but I know God is in control, and I know that I'm his servant, <clears throat> so he's not going to let anything happen to me that's going to destroy me. There's nothing that he and I can't handle together and so i keep my faith in god now don't hear what i'm not saying i'm not saying that uh that th it might not kill you <laughs> i mean you might say well you know my uncle trusted god and he's dead now i didn't say anything that it the trial might kill you it might kill you and some of you might be thinking hey uh i don't i don't know if i want that kind of a promise if it's gonna kill me Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So let me ask you a question. If I, if I could guarantee you that you would have no trouble in this life, but the next life, you're going to pay for all that. Or I could tell you, hey, you might have trouble in this life. You probably will have trouble in this life. Some of that trouble might kill you but I'm going to give you a guarantee for the next life, for eternity, which is a lot longer than this life. Which one would you take? I hope, I hope you wouldn't take the immediate satisfaction. I hope you would be like Moses who was, looking, who was looking down the road and chose to be punished for a little while with the people of God rather than to endure or enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short while. So... <clears throat> Why does God allow troubles in my life? Why does God allow trials in the lives of his children? They're going to happen. Why does he do it? I think for three reasons. Number one, to perfect us. Number two, to correct us. And number three, 
to redirect us. <clears throat> Let's just take a moment and look at each of these. Trials perfect us. Now, when I use the word perfect or perfect, it's a synonym in the Greek for the word complete or mature. You know, we all got to grow up, don't we? And this is what James is talking about in verse 3. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be, what's that word? Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Someone said tough times never last, but tough people do. Trials do that for us, don't they? They kind of make us tough. They make us tough. You know, if you're, if you're raising kids, you, uh, you, you have a choice to make. You, the kind of parent you're you might be the, the kind of parent that hovers. You know, they call these helicopter parents. You know what I mean? Have you seen these? And if the child begins to stumble, they, you know, they stop it and, and, and you know, protect them from every little thing. Or you might be the free-range parent. It's like, where are your kids? Oh, I don't know. It's not dinner time yet. They're probably outside playing with that snake or you know, there's some kind of a balance in between the two that I, I feel like is the right way to protect your kids from anything that might seriously harm them or kill them, but not to protect them so much that they don't experience pain, right? Let them fall down. Let them, let them disobey you and then understand the consequences of disobedience. That's the kind of parent we have to be, and it it helps grow them. It, it does a lot of things for them, and it, it makes them a little bit tougher. And so here's what we have to understand is that God's plan for all of us is for us to look more like Jesus. That's what we read this morning, Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And so everything we go through, everything that happens to us, those that God foreknew, who do you think God foreknew? All of us. He foreknew all of us. His plan for all of us is to become more like his son. He wants, to, he wants us to be more like Jesus. When bad things happen to us, when good things happen to us, we need not respond in arrogance or cockiness. We need not respond in depression or throwing in the towel. In, in all things, whether good or bad, he wants us to become more like Jesus. He wants us to respond like Jesus would respond. And that's our goal. And so maybe good things happen to you, but you rubbed it in the face of, of your friends. That's not how Jesus would respond. Good for you, but that's not what Jesus would do with that. Or maybe you had a terrible loss in your life, so you're ready to throw in the towel and give up your faith. That's not how Jesus would respond. And we can look at the Gospels and see his life, and he had all those things happen to him. And how did he respond? That's what God wants us to become. He, he wants us to look more like his son so that we're in heaven. We're not whining and complaining about the temperature or, you know, it's raining over here. And even if we were in charge, it'd be raining here and snowing here and sunshine over here and be chaotic, wouldn't it? <clears throat> no, it would be, he wants us to be a, a son a child, a daughter, like his son, who says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. 
Man, when you can teach your kids that, when you can help them grow up and understand that they don't always get their way, that sometimes you're going to say no, and the world's going to say no, and other people are going to say no, and now what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So trials have a way of perfecting us, perfecting us. And uh, I don't think we'll ever be there. I don't think we'll ever be sinless in this life. The Apostle Paul didn't think he was. And if anybody had a better chance at it than us, it was him. But he says here uh, to the Corinthian church, he said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So Paul says something bad happened to us, and we were really depressed. Indeed, he said, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that, here's how he has perspective on this. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. Here's Paul growing up a little bit. He says, we didn't get our way. We thought we were going to die. But we realized this was God's way of making us rely less on ourselves and more on him. And we need that, don't we? We need that in our lives. Trials are there to perfect us. They're there to correct us. You ever had a correcting trial? Anybody been slapped in 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 the head by something stupid that you did? Yeah, sometimes it happens immediately. Sometimes it happens later. But let's be honest. A lot of the problems we have in our own lives are our own fault, right? It's because we make dumb mistakes. We do things. God says, don't do that. He says, I just want to do it a little bit. I was talking to one of my grandsons the other day, and I never heard anybody say this. He said, Grandpa, you want a little bit or a lot of bit? I said, I want a lot of bit. A little bit or a lot of it. And, you know, too, far too often when we get into that stuff, we, we want a lot of it. God says, no, you don't even need a little bit. You don't even need a little bit. We do it anyway. And these trials correct us. I love the story of the prodigal son. This is a correcting trial. He wanted his, he wanted his inheritance. The father gave it to him. <clears throat> he went out. All was good while the money was flowing. But when the money stopped, things started turning down, didn't it? And he found himself in the pig pen. He was in the correction of life, the correction phase. He was suffering. He was hungry. He was eating what the pigs were eating. And finally, it was down there where, where the Bible says he came to his senses. And that's often what happens. When we get knocked down and we finally understand, well, that was my fault, that's when we come to our senses. And that's what he said. It's my fault. I'm going to go back to my dad and say, I was stupid. Take me back. Or another example of this is the story of Jonah. You remember Jonah? God said, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, I don't want to. God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah said, I'm not going to. And he ran from God. He got on a boat sailing in the opposite direction. But you remember what happened. The storm came up, and, and he finally came clean and said, hey, guys, it's me. It's me. Throw me overboard. They said, no, Jonah, you just hang on. We'll just row harder. So they rowed harder, and it got worse. And they said, okay, Jonah, we're throwing you overboard. And they threw him overboard in a big, we say whale, but it was a, it, the word is dag for fish. The word is dag, like dag, gum, what a big fish that is. That's the Hebrew word for fish, dag, dag, gum. That's a big fish. And guess when Jonah came to his senses? 
when he spent three days in the belly of that well and then was vomited up on the beach, he said, all right, I'll do what you want me to. And that's sometimes us. So trials, uh, you know, they perfect us, they correct us, and sometimes they redirect us. God says, wait a minute, you know, you're, you're okay, but let's, let's go over this way. Remember Balaam in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 22, was going to pr- pronounce a curse on God's people, and <clears throat> he was riding his donkey along, and an angel of the Lord came up. The donkey could see it, but Balaam couldn't, and the, the donkey stopped, and Balaam was kicking her to go on, and, and, um, um, and finally the donkey smashed his foot up against the rock, and uh, Balaam was, <laughs> I think he was probably letting a few choice words fly at that point, and the, he started beating the donkey. And what did the donkey do? He said, why are you beating me? Why are you doing this? I've been good to you. He started talking to him. You know you're in a trial when animals start talking to you. And so God redirected Balaam that day. He was going to pronounce a curse, but he instead pronounced a blessing. Another example is Acts chapter 27, when the apostle Paul was headed for Rome. He had planned to make he had plans to make his case to the emperor. He had been arrested for doing something he didn't think he was guilty of. He was a Roman citizen. He had the right to go to the Roman emperor and plead his case. And the end of Acts chapter, uh, in the end of the book of Acts, in chapters 27 and 28, we have Paul being a captive going to Italy, going to Rome. And all of a sudden, a shipwreck happened. Uh, you know, the storm came up, and eventually the, the ship wrecked. But Paul assured them, if you guys... If you guys won't jump overboard, don't throw us overboard, us prisoners. Everybody's going to be okay. And they, and they shipwrecked near a little island called Malta. This is an interesting story at the end of the book of Acts. And when they were at Malta, Paul met a guy named Publius who became a believer, and Paul healed his family. And if that shipwreck had never happened, if the storm had never happened, if that trial had never happened, Paul would have never been able to talk to Publius or heal his family or really share the gospel on that little island. And this is what we call a divine detour. Anybody ever had a divine detour? Yeah, maybe it was a detour where you were slowed down for a little while and you, or you had to go a different way to Huntington or an accident happened and you're like, man, if I had been there, that might have been me and a divine detour happened and God put somebody in your path because of that. Maybe that's the person you married. It was a divine detour for you. And that could be somebody important in your life. And so God does this a lot. <clears throat> it could be a sickness, a relationship breakup. It could be a flat tire or a broken down something, but God is using it in your life. God doesn't waste any trial to shape you. He doesn't want you to waste any pain in that trial. So trials perfect us, correct us, redirect us. You know, I'm reminded of the story of the mule who fell over into this big deep hole this farmer was digging. And this was back before big farm implements, and the farmer didn't know what to do. He tried to get the mule out, and the mule was too heavy. He couldn't get him out, and he called the neighbors. They couldn't get it out, and so finally the farmer said, well, we're just going to have to bury it a lot. And so uh, it was like the mule knew. He was kind of whining down there, and they started throwing dirt on him, threw dirt on him. The mule was whining and hollering and everything, and then finally the mule stopped whining. They thought, okay. They kept throwing dirt in that hole, and, well, you know what happened. 
with every load of dirt, the mule shook it off and stepped on it. The mule shook it off and stepped on it, and before you know it, he just stepped out of the hole. That's, that's a good illustration for us. You're going to get a lot of dirt thrown on you. They're going to try to bury you. Satan wants you to go under, shake it off, and step on it, and keep going. So if you're having trials today, the apostle Paul says to be joyful. Look at verse 12. I think I have verse 12 up here. Verse 12 says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Going through some trials? Ask yourself, God, what are you doing? What are you doing in my life? And thank you, God, for still working on me. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to study this book, to be encouraged in our trials. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave here, trials are coming for us. We know they're out there. We know we're going to move into one. One's going to sneak up behind us. Lord, I pray that our lives would look different. I pray that we would respond differently. Instead of uh, uh, crying and, and, uh, and, and complaining, Lord, help us to see uh, the fact that you're still with us. You're still working with us. You still want to make something of us. And so we count it all joy that you, that you still see us and you, you want to do something and make something of us. That's my prayer, Lord, that we would see life in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're here today and you don't know what's going on in your life, what God is doing, I'm going to invite you to come as we sing and come talk to me. Maybe you want to trust Christ today for your salvation or follow that up today with baptism. Maybe you want to put your